It's good to be back in Ohio. We arrived back on Wednesday. I was able to spend some time with my parents and my brothers. My parents, I mentioned before we left that they were suffering from COVID and they are mostly recovered. They were mostly recovered by the time we got to spend some time with them, for which I am thankful and was able to see my brothers all together. That's kind of a rare event these days because we're scattered out different places, but was able to see uh, all my nieces as well and my one nephew, all the nieces. And I was able to spend some time with a few friends, uh, one that I had, uh, well, two that I had seen since high school, two that I had not seen since high school. So that's a while ago, as you can imagine. And I was thankful to know that one of my friends from high school still following the Lord, some needs in the other's lives. Um, but I was thankful just for an opportunity also to give testimony uh, to one of my friends and also my family was able to give testimony to him as well. So just grateful to the Lord for his goodness to give us some time there. I also want to just thank you all for your generosity to me and my wife and our family uh, over Christmas. I know we weren't here on Christmas Day, but I just appreciate your expressions of love and care for us. And uh, it was um, really the timing and circumstances um, in order to be with all of my family at one time, we just had to choose a day uh, or a time to be there, and that seemed to be uh, the week. But I hope you had a, a blessed Christmas, joyful Christmas, remembering the Lord's birth. And I hope as we enter a new year that uh, you are looking forward to what the Lord is going to do. Um, as I was pondering uh, this time, just this day and getting together on a new year, uh, I tend to think in terms of a passage of scripture that focuses on the Lord, something that would direct our hearts certainly to him, to worship him, but also would give us uh, some hope and encouragement as we look at a new year. And so Psalm 91 uh, came to my mind. I oftentimes think of Psalm 90 because Psalm 90 has that reference to the days of our life in verse 10 and asking the Lord to teach us to number our days in verse 12 and then make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us. Verse 15, the years we've seen evil and it's a prayer for the work that they are to accomplish. But I was looking at Psalm 91 and just considered uh, the really the subject of Psalm 91, and I trust it'll be an encouragement to us today. And then as we look at a new year, uh, to go forward into the new year with trust in the Lord, uh, we have, through our Christian lives, have to be reminded of the importance of faith and trusting in the Lord? How many times do the scriptures tell us to trust in the Lord? And this song, uh, psalm calls us to trust in the Lord, but also gives us some wonderful assurances of the security that we have 
when we do trust in the Lord. And really, there's an invitation to ultimate security in this psalm. And it is to trust in the Most High, to, as the verse says, verse 1, to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So let's read through this psalm together and uh, consider it this morning. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon a lion and a cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. The word of our God stands forever. Praise the Lord for his word. My grandfather, when he was in the battle of the bulge, uh, had two portions of scripture with him. He had a New Testament, which he owned, and he had a small piece of paper that had this psalm on it. I heard that story from my grandfather. My dad actually told us again this little story um, just a few days ago of how much of a blessing it was to have the Scripture but also to have the confidence that he had called upon God along with his parents before he ever left for battle and how that gave him confidence in the battle. Apparently, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother took him aside before he left and prayed with him and asked very specifically that the Lord would protect his life and keep him so that he could return one day. And the Lord answered that prayer. I know certainly God had different plans for others who may have prayed that as well, but God answered that prayer for him. And through the war, there were times at which he gave testimony to his fellow soldiers that the confidence that he had was not because he was confident in himself, but he was confident in the Lord. 
And he told them about how he prayed with his parents and how he was sure that the Lord was going to bring him home. Well, he ended up getting hit by a shell, a burst that hit a tree above him. And he had metal shards in different parts of his body. And that resulted in a few days in a place where he wasn't injured badly enough to be removed. He had to just wait. And then eventually he was removed back to England where he recovered and uh, was eventually able to celebrate. I learned uh, VE Day, Victory in Europe. But the Lord brought him through. And he trusted in the Lord as his security. And this really is a good text for a, a soldier. Verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. That arrow flies because someone has fired it. And it has deadly intent. It's a good text for a soldier. There's also, of course, in this psalm, good text for sinners. It's a good text for a new year. It's really a good text for life. Because ultimate security is promised. You see that in this psalm, the security that you find when you dwell in the shelter or the shadow of the Almighty. The first verse and the second verse, someone said, kind of give us headlines for this psalm. There's a headline statement, verse 1, and then a headline response. The headline statement, which is a promise from the psalmist, is he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That, of course, is God. If you're there in that place, you will abide, you will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Those titles of God can be found in the book of Genesis. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Some suggest that because there is no title over this psalm, and the previous one is titled, that there is no change in the psalmist. This could be another psalm of Moses. There are also things about the psalm that might point to David, but regardless, we have the confidence from the psalmist, that God will be a protector for those who look to him in faith. And both with regard to Moses and his life, the children of Israel in Egypt, and David and his life, all the times that he was running from Saul plus his enemies, you could say both of those men experienced the protection of God. There's a promise of security given. In verse 1, this ultimate security is in the shelter or in the secret place of the Most High. If you look up that word that is translated shelter, you can find in Scripture that it is used of a secret hiding place for the purpose of security. Jonathan told David to find a shelter or a secret place to hide from his father. In Job chapter 40, verse 21, this word is used of an animal that hides in the reeds and the marsh, secret, safe place. Song of Solomon, it refers to lovers who are seeking a secret place to meet 
and show love to one another. And Job 22, clouds are a hiding place or a secret place to the Lord. But this is a promise really to anyone who would find shelter in the secret place of the Most High. And this hiding place is one that the Lord provides. In Psalm 27, there's a secret place of his tent or his tabernacle. Moses, of course, met with the Lord at the tent of meeting, it's called, and enjoyed the fellowship of the Lord, talking with the Lord, the Lord talking with him. But notice as well, in addition to that secret place, and this is the secret place of the Most High, that's a reference to God. That's the title that Melchizedek gave when he spoke of God Most High. But then this phrase that we may not be as familiar with, abiding in the shadow of the Almighty, dwelling in a place where the Almighty casts his shadow. If he fills heaven and earth, how big is that shadow? How could there be a sun or a source of light that would cast a shadow for the Almighty? Well, we could take that and think about it some. I think as Scripture, you compare Scripture with Scripture, you can find that this phrase, abiding in the shadow of someone, is to abide in their protection to be in their care. Even the imagery in verse 4 gives us a little sense of the protection of a small bird from its mother. Notice verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. It's that kind of shelter, that kind of protection, that kind of shadow. For a mother bird, it would be protecting its chicks from perhaps a predator, or perhaps the heat, or a storm, or whatever might come, that bird is covering for the sake of protecting. There's also, in addition to just that protection, there is a presence. There's a nearness. Uh, The secret place of the Most High is not just a place to rely upon God for safety and deliverance. It's to enjoy His presence and fellowship not merely using God for what he'll do for you, but enjoying him and who he is. And so this verse, verse 1, is a verse that promises ultimate security, but it also promises that fellowship, abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. And upon declaring the promise, Putting it out there for anyone who would take advantage of it, the psalmist himself takes advantage of it as he says, I will take advantage of it. I will say to the Lord. And as somewhat of an exposition upon what has already been said, he says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is his resolution, and what a resolution, a great New Year's resolution to trust in the Lord. In light of that promise of ultimate security and fellowship, the psalmist says, I will say to the life-giving, world-creating, 
eternity inhabiting, unchanging creator God who sits upon the throne of heaven, I will say, I will trust in him. And that's what that name, Yahweh, means. He's the one who gives life. He is the one, of course, who created the world. He is the one who is eternal and inhabits eternity. He does not change. And he sits upon the throne of heaven as sovereign. What a safe place to be in the refuge of that one. The one who could protect you from any danger. The one who could meet you in your need and watch over you. A refuge, verse 2, is a place of shelter, a tower. Psalm 104 says the mountains were a refuge for the goats. The cliffs were a refuge for the rock badgers. David found refuge in places where, as he ran from Saul or his enemies, there were great big rocks with caves, and he could know that he was both in the safety of that cave and see if anyone was coming And it was a place where he could defend himself. But as David applied even that term, he applied it to the Lord. Beyond any earthly refuge, beyond any place of earthly shelter or safety is the Lord. That word fortress is also used in that same kind of context. It's used of a mountain stronghold, the cave of Adullam, which David found himself in at different times. It's used of Zion. This is a strongly fortified, defensive, or military structure. And the psalmist here is saying, that is the Lord for me. That's where I'm going to find my safety. Not going to seek for other things or other people in this world, my own power or my own resources. Instead of all that, I'm going to trust in the mighty one in the strong one, which is God, my God, in whom I trust. And did you notice the personal pronouns there? When you make a resolution, that resolution is for you. This resolution is for him as he says, I will say my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So this is the one in whom he places his complete reliance for his safety, protection, and he finds joy in fellowshipping with him. Now, obviously, people say to other things in this world the same thing the psalmist says here to God. Just think of all the things that people put their trust in instead of the Lord. You can look at the life of Jacob and see his scheming, his constant looking to other things or his own devices to keep him safe and to keep his resources safe. And yet God was the one who, in the end, he had to look at and say, it was really the Lord. And the Lord said to him that I'm the one who done who has done this for you. You look at Israel as a nation, and how many times did they trust in human kings and foreign powers and false gods rather than the Lord? So this really confronts us, this statement in verse 2 confronts us with what is your trust in? What are you relying upon for your security, for your safety? What is your refuge? What do you run to when you go through a time of trouble or difficulty? 
Have you trusted in the Lord? And are you trusting in the Lord? How many times does the scripture tell us to trust in the Lord? Well, here it's personal example, but Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 125 verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Isaiah 26, 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Blessed is the man, Jeremiah said, who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. There's blessing for the one who trusts in the Lord. We see it given in the rest of this psalm, but Jeremiah goes on to say, the one who trusts in the Lord will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Trust in the Lord brings prosperity. Not financial prosperity, not necessarily physical prosperity. This is not a prosperity gospel in that sense, but you will prosper spiritually when you put your trust in the Lord. So are you trusting in him? Did you trust in him this last year? Trust and obey. That's one of the ways that we show our trust in the Lord. There's more than that. Even at the end of this psalm, there are multiple things that the Lord shows that demonstrate trust in the Lord, and we'll come to those. But there's a promise here of ultimate security, and the psalmist himself is claiming it. But he doesn't want it just for himself. You can see in verse 3 that he turns to the ones who are reading or singing, and he speaks of them as well. There's a change in the pronouns in verse 3. For it is he who delivers you. It's not just him. And if this is Moses, it's the children of Israel he's calling to trust the Lord. And if it's David, it's the children of Israel. But because the Psalms are for us, we're to speak to ourselves in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is to us. For it is he speaking of God, speaking of the one who's a refuge and fortress, speaking of Yahweh, the Most High, the Almighty. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. And I would put it this way in verse 3, that he provides protection from unknown dangers. You don't see a snare, most likely, until you're already in it, unless someone has warned you, or unless someone directs you another way. And you can't see a deadly pestilence. You can see the effects of it, but you can't see how it spreads. You don't know how it's going to move from one to the other. The snare of a trapper refers to someone who would seek to capture by cunning and stealth. The way that it's put here, there's not a capital T. We don't know who the trapper necessarily is. It refers to a personality. But whoever that may be, God can deliver us from that snare. 
I think you could say the ultimate trapper, the one who would seek to ensnare us or trip us up would be the devil. Doesn't say that here. And as you look through the pages of scripture, you can see people with purposes to trip up the godly. And while the devil may be part of that plot, it's certainly others with evil hearts and evil intent who are seeking to bring that harm. The word that's translated snare here is a trapping net, like you would use for a bird or a small animal, a net that suddenly comes over its victim and then keeps it from moving. The word trapper is literally the word fowler. It's a bird trapper. And so when you think about that and don't, just think in terms of the animal, but apply it to life, you realize that this world is full of snares and full of trappers. And again, an ultimate evil being who would seek to ensnare and trap us and keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And we can't see when those come, but we can trust in the one who sees all things. What did we read this morning? In Proverbs, that the Lord sees everything. His eyes are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He can see when someone sets a trap. He can keep us from going that way, or he can protect us from it right in the midst of it. So I was thinking about verse 3. I remember a story that uh, I think I read about first in John Flavel's Mystery of Providence, how Augustine was headed on a journey. He had a guide who had usually been during uh, his time as a guide through this particular way. And for some reason, the guide got diverted and got lost and went another way with Augustine to get him to his desired location. And what they learned after that was that there was someone who was in that way that the guide knew so well to try to capture Augustine and perhaps kill him. But God protected him. How did that happen? It was God in his providence. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. Now, you can think in terms of him delivering you from it before it, but even if you get caught up in it, God can deliver you. You look at the lives of David, Daniel, Paul, Jesus. There were all attempts at entrapping them. They were cunning. They were secretive. But the Lord subverted all those plans. He brought all of his plans to be accomplished, and the plans of the enemies were foiled. Until, of course, in God's plan, our Savior was taken and crucified. And that's part of, as we look at this psalm, we have to remember that this psalm is not just about God providing that ultimate security now and always at all times so that we can be presumptuous. No, there are times where the Lord, in his providence and his will, does not for his own purposes. But if you're going to find someone to deliver you, if you're going to find someone to protect you, no earthly being. God alone can protect you. Look at the end of verse 3, and it says also from the deadly pestilence. This refers possibly to the plagues that happened in the wilderness when the children of Israel were there 
with uh, Moses and they sinned against the Lord and the Lord would send plagues. This is the same word that's used in Exodus when it refers to the plagues in Egypt. And when you think about those plagues in Egypt or even those plagues in the wilderness, how did any of the children of Israel escape them? And of course, how did they escape the ones in Egypt? Why was there a difference between that place in Goshen where the children of Israel were and all the rest of the Egyptian homes? When there are lice, which typically know no boundaries, or flies that don't know boundaries. When there's darkness that typically, if it covers a land, it's going to cover everything. And yet there was light in the dwelling of the Israelites during that time. Why? did the children of Israel escape the plague upon the firstborn? It was because they knew the one who was sending the plagues. And they trusted in him. God delivered them. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. The deadly pestilence would go beyond any of those plagues that just annoyed, like the frogs, to the ones that actually took life the ones that actually would bring about the death of a person. And that does seem to be a particular concern in this psalm. If you look at verse 3, at the end of the verse, it's the deadly pestilence. In verse 6, it's the pestilence. In verse 10, it's the plague. There are those who believe this psalm may have been written around the time of the fiery serpents or perhaps some other plague that the children of Israel face because of the Lord's judgment. It does seem that that is connected in verse 8 when it says you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, that that recompense was coming upon those who had sinned against the Lord. The Lord was judging them and he was rewarding them. And there were some among the children of Israel who survived. In fact, there were some who survived when the serpents came and started biting the people, and some were already bitten. And as they listened to Moses and looked at the brazen serpent that he set up before them, they were delivered. They were healed. They did not die. Why? Because they came under the care and the protection by faith in the one who could deliver them from that deadly poison that came their way. Verse 4 gives us that imagery again of that mother bird who is protecting its own. He, speaking of God, will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. What a tender picture of God and his care for his people. Like a bird that gathers its chicks under its wings so that the predator flying up above could not come down and harm them. You find this elsewhere in Exodus. It's the Lord who bore Israel on eagles' wings. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 11, Boaz, when Ruth can't understand the kindness of Boaz to let her glean as she did, Boaz explains all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not previously know. And then he said this, may the Lord reward your work 
and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And she had. When she came with Naomi, she said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Ruth wasn't just seeking a new place to live. She found God to be the one that would be her refuge and her source of safety. She came under the shadow and the shelter of his wings and look at what the Lord did for Ruth. Not only giving her to Boaz as his wife, but also becoming the mother, the grandmother of David and eventually in the line of the Messiah. What a wonderful thing it is to trust in the Lord. What a wonderful thing it is to come under his protection and care. There's another image at the end of verse 4. It's God's faithfulness. And the words here are, in the New American Standard, a shield and a bulwark. That second term, bulwark, could also be translated buckler. I tend to think that that's really what the psalmist was intending here because the idea is a shield was a tall standing shield. It would absorb the arrows, the onslaught of the enemy, but if there was close hand-to-hand combat, that buckler was to be attached to the arm of a soldier and it could protect them from those close uh, combat kind of strikes. And so you have the protection, the broad protection, but when the combat became close, the close protection. And the idea is this is complete protection. He is both shield and buckler. He's the one whose faithfulness, and that's the truth about God, his faithfulness becomes that for you. It protects you in every way. If I could put it this way, it's all around protection. It's above, behind, beneath, around Philip Henry, speaking of Christ, said Christ is an all-sufficient shield. He's a shield to them that would put their trust in him. If there were more such than there are, he would be enough for each of them. It concerns everyone then to make sure his interest in Christ, if Christless, shieldless, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have God, if you don't have the Most High, if you don't know the Almighty, you don't have this ultimate security. There is not that protection for you. If Christless, shieldless, you won't be protected from the enemy. You ultimately won't be protected from eternal punishment. But Henry went on to say, he is, speaking of Christ as a shield, he is so at all times and in all cases against all enemies, in all perils and dangers to the inward man, to the outward man, being God all-sufficient, he is a shield all-sufficient. And you might say, well, that's pretty comprehensive. It gets better. It's more than just those dangers from without. It's also the fears from within. Notice in verse 5, he says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. 
Not only can he provide protection from the threats from without, but he can provide protection from the fears that come and confront our heart. Those annoying fears, as one songwriter said, when the woes of life overtake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy. It's not just the presence of danger, real danger, it's the fear of those things that annoys us and constantly occupies the faithless heart. Fear is that trouble or agitation of mind that arises, John Flavel said, when we perceive approaching evil or impending danger. And the dangers are multiplied here, verse 5 and 6, the terror by night, the arrow by day, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, the destruction that lays waste at noon. The terror by night could be a surprise attack of the enemy. Song of Solomon 3, verse 8, speaks of Song uh, Solomon's soldiers, his guard, which they are wielders of the sword, experts in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. So lest someone should enter into the palace unawares and come into that area where Solomon is these soldiers are there to defend him. Why are those soldiers there? Because of the fear of the possibility someone would seek to harm the king. The arrow, obviously, of deadly intent is shot from the enemy, aims for its victim. They can be shot in the night as well, but the arrow that flies by day is speaking of warfare. Constant battle barrage of arrows, or in these days, bullets, or some other kind of flying metal coming. And what the psalmist here is saying is that you, if you put your trust in this almighty, most high God, you don't need to fear those things when you're in his care. Pestilence. Stalks in darkness, literally walking in darkness, moving unknown, touching one life, another, a household keeps on moving, and you can't stop it. And it does seem that destruction that lays waste at noon would be a, a reinforcement of that idea. The pestilence doesn't stop when it's, when it's daytime. It just keeps on going. Now, verse 7, you can look in connection with verse 5 in terms of warfare, or you can look at it in connection with the pestilence. And I, as I study this section of the psalm, I would suggest it refers to the pestilence, the plague that is spreading from house to house, tent to tent, that's causing thousands and ten thousands to fall. But the one who trusts in the Lord, it's not even going to come close to you, is the point of verse 7. At the end of the verse, it says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it, referring, I believe, to the pestilence, shall not approach you. That word approach means the idea of it won't even come close. Why? Because you're trusting in the Lord. 
And this judgment that is coming because the Lord sends the pestilence, the Lord is the one who sends the plagues. He is sovereign over all that. It's coming because, as I understand what's being said here, because of wickedness. It was in Egypt. It was in the wilderness. It is, according to Deuteronomy, when God's people forsake him and turn from him, God sends pestilence so that they will return to him, so that they will call out in faith upon him. And the promise here is for those who are going through a time when there are those falling at either side, multiplied thousands, they're only going to look at that with their eyes. And they will see, notice the end of verse 8, the recompense of the wicked. This is the reward for wickedness. God is bringing judgment. In the case of Israel, again, in the wilderness, it was their murmuring and their complaining. It was their faithless treachery against God. They would not believe his promises. They complained about the food that they didn't have, the water that they didn't have. They weren't trusting in the Lord and the Lord at different times. When they rebelled against the leadership that God gave uh, to them, God sent discipline. He sent judgment. And the psalmist says here that when that's all taking place, you're only going to look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Why? And again, you have in verse 9 a similarity with regard to the pronouns back to verse 3. Remember it said in verse 3, for it is he who delivers you The assumption of the psalmist here by this time is that looking upon these promises and these truths made from God, these promises to his people, that they would also take refuge in the Lord, in the Most High, that they would make him their dwelling place. And as a result, verse 10, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. So God is providing protection. He's providing protection from unknown dangers. He's providing protection from troubling fears. He's providing protection from his own judgment of his people, the ones who would not believe and trust in him. And for those who made God the Lord their refuge, what wonderful promises. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. It's not going to come close to you if you're trusting in the Lord. There's a story in a biography of George Washington. He was fighting with the British before the Revolutionary War at Fort Duquesne near Braddock, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area. Some 1,400 soldiers began to cross the river three different companies. They did not know that across the river, there were 900 French and Indian soldiers waiting for them. And it was an absolute disaster for the British. Washington, following his leadership, was leading this company of men that he had as a part of this battle. And his, as I understand, his commanding officer fell, many of the British fell, and he in his bright coat and tall hat and tall stature was riding a horse. 
he's an easy target. And somehow with two horses shot under him and four bullets that went through his hat and his uniform, he survived that battle. In fact, he was completely unharmed. A doctor who observed Washington that day, he said, I expected every moment to see him fall. His duty and station exposed him to every danger, nothing He said, but the superintending care of providence could have saved him from the fate of all around him. In other words, here's this, not that he was the only one who survived, but here's sort of a solitary figure who is losing his horse and jumping on another, and he's just not being harmed. Why is that? Well, we'd have to say it's God's providence. Regardless of Washington's spiritual state, God had a purpose for him. But this solitary sort of figure who is escaping destruction, that's the one who is trusting in the Lord. That's the one who's trusting in the Lord. And of course, the destruction that we have most to fear is really what verse 8 is talking about. That's the recompense of the wicked. Because there's not really any of us who can't see ourselves apart from that word, the end of verse 8. Are you wicked? Are you sinful? I sure am. The only refuge that we have from judgment upon our own wickedness is Jesus Christ. That's the only safe place, is finding refuge in him and in his cross, in his blood shed for your sins. That picture in the wilderness of the plague of fiery serpents. Imagine waking up one morning and suddenly you have all kinds of cobras that are slithering around your tent and attacking people, biting people. You're having to avoid them. And you get bitten because you're part of the crowd. And the only hope that you have is when the announcement is made and the brazen serpent is lifted up and Moses says, if you look, you'll live. You know, there are many people who didn't look, and they died. And the point for us, as we see in the Gospel of John, is to trust in the antitype. There's a type, there's a picture, and the antitype is the fulfillment of that. What did John say? Was He recorded what Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's ultimate security. Finding refuge in the one who can save you from your own sins, the consequence of your own sins, the recompense of the wicked. Because God most surely will judge the wicked. God is not going to allow the kind of 
filthy, foolish, sickening, abomination, sinful behavior that's taking place all around us. He's not going to allow that to go on unchecked, first of all, but also unpunished. He will punish sin. If you want a guarantee of that, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. He punished our sins in Christ. And there is a place called the lake of fire. And those who do not put their trust in Christ, do not look to him alone, will find themselves standing before the great white throne of judgment. They will face the one from whom heaven and earth flees. They will stand before him. Their deeds will be read and he will justly send them into eternal punishment. Fear that, sinner. Fear that. Turn from your darkness to the light. God will be your only refuge. And when he takes you as his own and he protects you, you will see it. But that kind of judgment is not going to come near you if you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ. I could be talking to someone this morning, and you attend this church, you could be a member of this church, but you do not know the Lord. It's all just going through the motions. You've never turned from your sins. You've never found refuge in the Savior. You don't find joy in His presence. You're not looking to Him. You know, today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day in which you find refuge in the Almighty. And you'll be safe for eternity, covered by the precious blood of Christ. This God that we serve has angels. Look at his angels, verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. See, God has means and agents beyond our knowledge, beyond our sight. Those angels that serve the Almighty are ministering spirits, Hebrews chapter 1 says. They're sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. At the end of the age, they will be sent to gather up the elect, but the rest are going to be cast into the fire. But if you want to be safe, you want the angels on your side. You want that command to be issued, and you are a part of the one, the ones who are born up by the angels, protected by the angels, both in life, but also certainly eternity. We know this text was used by the devil falsely to actually encourage presumption on the part of our Lord, which he would have none of. This isn't reason to be presumptuous just because the angels protect us. But I want you to notice it's not merely 
the angels that he's speaking about in verses 11 through 13. You notice again the pronoun in verse 13, you. He's been speaking of what things are done for you. But it's as if, as if in verse 13, you enter into the picture in a different way in verse 13, because he says, you will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion and the serpent, you will trample down. The statement that God protects us is complemented by this statement that he gives us the victory. It's no longer the angels. In fact, the angels would be powerful enough to take care of the lion and the cobra. But it's not the angels who are doing that. It's you who are doing that if you trust in the Lord. These deadly forces in play that seem to threaten us, now we are more than conquerors over. We trample them down and we tread them down. It is interesting what terms are recorded there in verse 13, the lion and the cobra or the lion and the horned viper, the young lion, and that is a different term. There's a bunch of terms for lion in the Old Testament. And the serpent, which also is translated dragon. Obviously, a cobra or a horned viper would be a poisonous snake. The lion, the young lion, is translated fierce lion in one place. So we're talking about a lion in its strength and a snake with all of its venom attacking you. How are you going to handle that when it comes your way? This is another reason that there's suggestion that this may be during that same time when the fiery serpents came to the children of Israel in God's judgment. It's not proof, but it's one of the reasons people tend to view it at, at that time. But verse 13 says, you will tread. The words that are used here, you could certainly think of actual animals. And has God ever given his people the power to physically defeat these animals? Of course he has. Samson, David, both killed lions. The Lord just shut the mouth of the lions when Daniel was in the den. What about serpents? Well, one day Saul, Paul, Tarsus is on the island of Malta, and he's gathering wood, and he picks up some wood, and there's a viper, a poisonous snake in the bundle of sticks, and it fastens to his hand, and he just shakes it off. And it didn't bring him any harm. So in terms of what God is promising here, at times in his world, for his purposes, he actually allowed these kinds of things to happen. I mean, Paul isn't trampling down that viper, but it didn't hurt him. But at least here we have something suggestive, don't we? A lion, a serpent, a dragon. He walks about as a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. 
the serpent in the garden is spoken of in Revelation as that old serpent. Seed of the woman was promised to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3. Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 says, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Those who trust in the Lord become a part of the victory. God enables them, not only delivers them, but now enables them to have part in the victory. And yes, that is victory over our enemy, the evil one, the devil. And he very certainly has his eyes on God's people. He certainly would destroy any sinner. But he hates God's people. But we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we enter into his victory as we trample down our enemies. This is the heritage. This is the possession of those who put their trust in the Lord. And I'm not just saying that without any basis. The psalmist is not saying it here without any basis. He's made the claim, verse 1, and the promise. He's given that promise. He has entered personally into that, and then he's begun to describe that ultimate security in so many ways. But what's the guarantee of that? What's the certification? What's the seal that makes that so sure? Because the psalmist is a man. But the end of this psalm is God. We know it's God's word and he's inspired scripture, so it's all of his words. But there are times when the oracles of God or the utterances of God are given and God's word as he gives it is absolutely true. This is the word of the Almighty. This is the word of the Most High. This is the word of that self-existent, eternal, unchanging, life-giving, sovereign God. And he says, I will, six times. Because he has loved me, verse 14, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him. And you could say an implied seventh, I will let him see my salvation. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. So we're not trusting in the words of a man. We're trusting in the words of the almighty God who has the power to bring to pass whatever he has declared. And if he has promised it, he is going to make it good. And as he promises it, here in verses 14 through 16, we see that certification based upon his I will, but it also shows the response of faith on the part of those who trust in him. In other words, we're called to trust, the psalmist has trusted, but now God is describing through so many terms here how to trust in the Lord. Verse 14, because he has loved me. 
God promises deliverance for those who love him. This is not a common word for love. It means to be bound to something or someone or to be attached to them. That word that's translated loved me is the same word that describes the binding of the silver bands in the tabernacle that kept the pillars and the hooks and the sockets all connected. It's the binding of those things. But here, it's not that kind of physical binding. It's a binding in love between the believer and God because he has become bound to me or devoted to me, desiring me, fellowshipping with me, with me. Therefore, I will deliver him. This is a love that's shown by obedience. It's shown by submission. And when obedience fails, hear me, when obedience fails, there is a genuine sorrow and a sadness that comes. Has your obedience failed? What happens when you fail? Is there a sorrow and a sadness, not just for the effects upon you, but because you sinned against the one you're devoted to? Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, they shall be comforted, but they're not mourning about just anything. They're mourning because of sin, their own sin, the sins of others. Blessing is going to come to the one who mourns in that way. And so I'd ask you today, are you devoted to the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Are you attached to him? Do you desire his presence and his fellowship? Do you desire the presence and fellowship of his people? I just want to encourage you, you're in the right place today, on this day, the first day of the year, you're with God's people. This is where you need to be. This is where we worship. This is where we fellowship with God and we fellowship with one another. Certainly we can do it away from here, but God actually calls us together to do that. But it's not only those who love him, they do love him, they're devoted to him. But notice the end of the verse, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. God promises protection for those who know his name. To set someone on high is to set them out of reach from their enemy, out of reach from the danger, to put them in a place where they can't be accessed. What kind of person is found in that place? The kind of person who knows God's name. Doesn't mean just knowing that his name is Yahweh, but knows what that name means. And not just intellectually, but by experience, they've come to know the one who is compassionate and gracious, Exodus 34. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth or faithfulness. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. Spurgeon described this kind of knowing God as a warm affection and an intelligent trust. They love him because they know him. And they know him, and because they know him, they love him. If you know God, you will love God. How do you come to love the Lord? How do you come to know the Lord? Well, I just ask you today, what are you doing with your Bible? 
This is a good time to reflect on what have I been doing with my Bible? Am I reading my Bible? You might be reading other good books. Good, but read your Bible. Make sure that the Bible is that first go-to. That's the book that you need the most. More than Facebook, more than any other electronic book, any physical book, the, the book that we need the most is the Lord's book that he gave to us so that we might come to know him, we might know his ways, we might know how to please him. What are you doing with your Bible? I was listening to a sermon this week called How to Become Full of Joy, and just for this section, it'd be worth a read. Spurgeon, the time that he preached it, had been publishing sermons. Of course, those sermons went all over England, but also all over the world. You might have copies of some of Spurgeon's sermons. But he said this, if my sermons kept people from reading the Bible for themselves, I would like to see the whole stock in a blaze and burn to ashes. They serve as finger posts, pointing them to the scriptures and saying, read this and this and this, then I'm thankful to have printed them. But if they keep you from reading your Bibles, burn them, burn them, burn them. Do not let them overlay the scriptures, but lie beneath them. That's their pro proper place. Keep you first to God's revealed word. Are you reading your Bible? This is the way to know God. This is the way to learn how to trust in God. Beyond those promises of deliverance, setting us on high because he loves God, because he knows God's name. Notice verse 15, the promise, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Answer prayer. When was the last time you had a prayer answered that you offered to God in faith? That prayer offered to God in faith is a matter of trusting in him. That's one of the ways that we show our trust in God is we pray to him for that which we need. We're not just asking for our wants. It's what we need. And when we ask him and he answers us, that gives us an assurance that he cares for us. It's an evidence of our faith in him. That's one of the ways in which he does all the other things that he mentioned in his psalm is his protection. You ever pray for the Lord's protection? I was with a friend on Friday. We made two prayers. One was rather simple. The other was a little complicated. By the end of the day, the Lord had answered them both. And we talked about it. I reminded him of one, and he reminded me of the other. We said, this is how the Lord answered our prayers. Not only does he answer our prayers, verse 15, but he's with us in trouble. Times of temptation, sorrow, suffering, sickness, in the valley of the shadow of death, affliction. God will be with you. That's his promise, the promise of his presence with those who love him, who call upon his name, who know his name, who trust in him. Not only will he be with them, but he will rescue them. End of the verse, I will rescue him and honor him. God comes to the aid of those who trust in him. 
You see that throughout the pages of Scripture. Have you seen it in your life? Where God has come to your aid and He has helped you. He does. He will. And He will honor you because you've honored Him. The one who trusts in the Lord as a miserable, wretched, filthy sinner. What does God do for such a person? What did the father do for his prodigal son? Get the robe, get the ring, get a roast. Right? God honored him. That prodigal who was wicked and filthy in his sins, God, when he came back, the picture there, I believe, is of Jesus welcoming that sinner back home. Of course, God the Father does as well. He will honor him. Beyond that, look at verse 16. With a long life, I will satisfy him. God, his promise is to extend the days. It's literally length of days. With those length of days, I will satisfy him. And you can think in terms of this life because God does extend physical life. He did it for Hezekiah. He did it other times in Scripture where he extended someone's life who called upon him, who trusted in him, maybe rescued them from death and so extended their life. But the greatest extension of life, listen, is eternal life. That is a length of days never to be calculated. Because when God gives eternal life, everlasting life, abundant life. It actually begins when you come to know the Lord and it never ends. We're not waiting for eternal life if we trust in the Lord. If you trust in the Lord today, you will be in possession of eternal life. That's what Jesus said in the gospel. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so this call to trust in the Lord comes with the promise of life if you do trust in him. And most certainly, he grants life to those who come to him. However miserable, wretched, filthy a sinner you are, and we all are. We all are. We all need that kind of salvation. Look at the last statement of the verse, verse 16. Implied, I will let him see my salvation. Uh, the marginal note says, cause him to feast his eyes on. I studied that word, couldn't exactly find a reference to the idea of feasting. But it certainly is to show someone something. I will show him my salvation. And this, someone said, is the last greatest climax of blessing. All of these blessings that he's spoken of. It comes to the end, and this is the greatest you could have. The one who trusts in the Lord will be saved. will have salvation. But this author said, the last greatest climax of blessing, including and concluding all. In other words, all these things that have been spoken of, are a part of the Lord's salvation. Hitherto, this writer said, has his servant caught glimpses of the great salvation. 
The Spirit has revealed step by step of it as he was able to bear it. The Word has taught him and he's rejoiced in his light, but all was seen in part and known in part. But when God has satisfied his servant with length of days and time for him is over eternity begun, he will show him his salvation. All will be plain, all will be known. God will be revealed in his love and glory, and we shall know all things even as we are known. It's a really simple message. You want to see salvation? The fullness of salvation? Those angels that are spoken about in this psalm, all the rest of those redeemed who put their trust in the Lord, rejoicing and worshiping the Lamb for sinners slain. You want to see all of that and experience the presence of the Holy One, the Almighty, the Most High forevermore? Trust in the Lord. Rely upon Him and rest in Him alone for your salvation. Trust in Him, and He will save you. I don't know how the Lord's going to make application this message today, but there could be someone who does need to know the Lord, and they have never put their trust in the Lord in their life. You just never put your trust in the Lord. You know, today could be the day of salvation. Today could be the beginning for you of your eternal life. The forgiveness of your sins, cleansing, right relationship with God. But for all of us, if you know the Lord, trust in the Lord. In the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. He is worthy of that today. He'll be worthy of that every day of this year and of the eternity to come. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we bow before you, Lord, would you do your work in our hearts. For that one, Lord, who is outside of Christ, who has no hope and was without you in this world, Lord, give them hope today. And Lord, for all of us, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to be devoted to you to know you, to call upon your name, to seek you by prayer, to read your word, and increasingly so through the new year. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn if you would.